In Baghdad, a U.S. drone strike has killed at least one of the most powerful militias backed by Iran. The group has claimed responsibility for a number of attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq. Our story is coming up on this Wednesday, February 7th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Also ahead, lawmakers in Virginia are deciding whether to allow doctors to prescribe lethal doses of drugs to patients with terminal illnesses who are thought to have six months or less to live. A robocall in New Hampshire's primary that urged people not to cast ballots appeared to be an artificial intelligence-generated clone of President Biden's voice. What does that signal for the 2024 election? The power afforded by new technologies that can be used by adversaries, it's going to be awful. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The U.S.'s top envoy in the Middle East says Hamas's offer to release Israeli hostages in exchange for a months-long Israeli ceasefire in Gaza creates space for an agreement to be reached. In his latest visit to Tel Aviv, Secretary of State Antony Blinken told reporters a short time ago that the U.S. believes Israel is justified in targeting Hamas after the militants' October 7th attacks. But he says Israel needs to do more to protect Gaza's civilians. Israelis were dehumanized in the most horrific way on October 7th. The hostages have been dehumanized every day since. But that cannot be a license to dehumanize others. The overwhelming majority of people in Gaza had nothing to do with the attacks of October 7th. Earlier today, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rejected Hamas's latest offer and said the Israeli military would continue its campaign to eradicate Hamas. Blinken addressed allegations that members of the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees took part in the October attacks. He says it's imperative there be a thorough investigation and clear accountability. Foreign aid to Israel, Ukraine and Taiwan remains in limbo after the U.S. Senate Republicans blocked a national security supplemental today over their opposition to a bipartisan border security deal. A U.S. drone strike in downtown Baghdad has killed at least one leader of an Iran-backed militia. Local video taken at the scene show a car in flames. Here's NPR's Tom Bowman. A U.S. official tells NPR that a leader of the militant group, Khatab Hezbollah, was killed in the nighttime drone strike. A name has not been released. But a telegram channel with links to the militant group says two leaders were killed. The group has claimed responsibility for numerous attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq, but Qatab Hezbollah said last week it would no longer target U.S. troops just before American warplanes hit militia sites in both Iraq and Syria. The latest drone strike on a busy street will likely put more political pressure on the Iraqi government, which has pushed for the 2,500 U.S. troops to leave the country. Tom Bowman, NPR News. Congressional forecasters expect the federal budget deficit to grow sharply over the next decade, but NPR's Scott Horsley reports a forecast is not as gloomy as it was last year. Congressional bean counters project the annual budget deficit will widen from $1.6 trillion this year to about $2.6 trillion in 2034. Higher borrowing costs account for most of that increase. An aging population and rising health care bills are also expected to add to the government's red ink. Still, the deficit is now projected to be smaller than nonpartisan forecasters were predicting last year. That's partly thanks to lawmakers' agreement to chip away at government spending. Faster-than-expected economic growth also helps to lower the deficit. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Well, the S&P 500 was close to hitting 5,000 for the first time, but it ends the day just short of that. You're listening to... 
NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. Governor Maura Healey is defending her latest pick for a justice for the state Supreme Judicial Court. WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports that Healey is facing criticism for nominating her former long-term partner to the post. Justice Gabrielle Wolohuljan has served on the state appeals court for 16 years and authored over 900 decisions. Wolohuljan was also in a long-term relationship with Healey when Healey was state attorney general. The governor says Willa Holgen was the unanimous choice of the nominating committee. I don't want the fact that she had a personal relationship with me to deprive the Commonwealth of a person who's most qualified for the position. The head of the state Republican Party calls the pick, quote, highly inappropriate. The nomination still needs approval from the eight-member governor's council. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. The city of Medford is calling on Israel and Hamas to declare a ceasefire. City Council Vice President Kit Collins says the resolution approved last night also asks for the release of all hostages. She calls this a local issue because many residents of Medford have family both in Gaza and Israel. Collins also says it involves billions of dollars being diverted overseas. We're talking about all of the urgent needs that are going unmet in our community because there isn't more local public dollars for fully funding the schools and road safety and affordable housing. And meanwhile, people see their tax dollars going overseas, you know, to wreak this destruction on a civilian population. The cities of Somerville and Cambridge have passed similar resolutions. Several high-profile bills appear to be dead on Beacon Hill. They include one that would have given teachers and other public workers the ability to strike. Another would have given communities the option to bring back happy hour in bars. Bills that do appear to be alive include early education and care investments and an updated bill on sex education. Today is the deadline for joint committees to decide which bills they'll consider debating and which they will not. And the U.S. Department of Transportation has rejected a state grant application for a major project planned in Alston. Local transportation leaders were hoping for $200 million to add public transit connections, build bike paths, and reconfigure traffic. This is the second consecutive year the grant application was rejected. It's 4.06. The forecast to clear day today should have clouds moving in now and overnight tonight about 28 degrees. Tomorrow the sun shines back. Temperatures warm to the low 40s. 39 now in Boston at 4.06. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Langloth Foundation, supporting justice, equity, and opportunity for all people to foster and sustain safe and healthy communities. Learn more at langloth.org and the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Ari Shapiro. In Baghdad, a U.S. airstrike has killed at least one leader of one of the most powerful Iran-backed militias. The attack took place mid-evening in a crowded Baghdad neighborhood. There's been extremely high tension between the U.S., Iran, and Iraq. NPR's Jane Araf joins us from Baghdad. Jane, what more can you tell us about this strike? Well, Ari, it took place in a crowded residential and commercial area in Baghdad, eastern Baghdad, about mid-evening when there were a lot of people out and around. Videos from the scene confirmed by an interior ministry official showed a sport utility vehicle engulfed in flames and emergency vehicles rushing to the scene. The main telegram channel used by a coalition of Iran-backed militias confirmed that a leader of Kitab Hezbollah was killed in the attack. It named him as Abu Bakr al-Saidi. An official at the 
at Iraq's Ministry of Interior said he had been the head of logistics for Kitab Hezbollah. And uh, just a few moments ago, um, a statement from CENTCOM, U.S. CENTCOM, which confirmed that it conducted a unilateral strike in Iraq in response to the attacks recently on U.S. service members. It said it killed a Kitab Hezbollah commander who it said was responsible for directly planning and participating in attacks on U.S. forces in the region. And this is not the first strike on this particular militia. Tell us about the context. Well, Kitab Hezbollah is perhaps the most powerful member of the mostly Iran-backed militias that call themselves the Islamic resistance of Iraq. It's a group that had existed before, but they've significantly stepped up attacks since the start of the war in Gaza against the U.S. because of what they say, against the U.S. because of its support for Israel and also because they reject the presence of U.S. forces here. The U.S. said the attack in January on a U.S. base in Jordan that killed three service people bore their fingerprints, this particular group. And in retaliation for that, the United States struck a main militia headquarters on the weekend in Iraq near the Syrian border. But most of the casualties in that strike were believed to be relatively low level and from other militias. This one seemed to be very targeted. What has the reaction been in Iraq? There's been a cautious Iraqi military statement. They say they're still investigating after a vehicle was hit and passengers killed. We have to remember this is a nightmare for the Iraqi government. The government, which is also backed by Iran in many senses, says it has tried to rein in these militias and it doesn't want to become a battleground for the conflict between the U.S. and Iran. But the U.S. had said has said that the government isn't doing enough. And when it announced the retaliation for the deaths of U.S. service people, it said the retaliation would be open-ended. And this is what we're seeing, essentially. It was very targeted, this strike, um, according to videos verified by the Interior Ministry here. Images of the weapons programs looked as of the fragments looked as if it were a version of the U.S. Hellfire missile with an inert warhead. And that's the kind used in other counterterrorism attacks. That's NPR's Jane Araf in Baghdad. Thank you. Thank you. The Supreme Court hears arguments tomorrow in a case that will decide whether Donald Trump should be removed from the Republican primary ballot in Colorado. There are at least two questions worth considering. The first is legal. Do his actions around the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol bar him from office according to the 14th Amendment? The second question is practical. What would happen if Trump were removed from the ballot? How might his tens of millions of supporters respond? Here's Trump at a rally last month. And I just hope we get fair treatment uh, because if we don't, our country's in big, big trouble. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? I think so. Because they'll cover that completely differently. They'll cover that in a much different manner. University of Chicago law professor Aziz Huck has spent some time thinking about that second practical question. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Sasha. Would you walk us through the arguments for and against removing Trump from the ballot? After the Civil War, Congress proposed and the states ratified an amendment to the Constitution that said that anyone who engaged in insurrection or rebellion 
or provided assistance or aid or comfort to those would be disqualified from holding federal offices if they had previously sworn an oath to uphold the Constitution. The argument today is that Section 3, by its terms, covers various actions that former President Trump committed, particularly on January the 6th. President Trump argues that the terms of Section 3 do not apply to his actions because he is not the right kind of official and because what happened on January the 6th did not count as an insurrection, at least as far as his actions were concerned. He further argues that if Section 3 is to be applied, it has to be done through a mechanism that Congress creates rather than by the independent actions and decisions of various state authorities. So he objects on multiple fronts. Whatever the court's ruling eventually is, would that ruling necessarily apply to all the states in terms of whether Trump is off or on the ballot? I think the best way to think about this is that the Supreme Court often rules on one specific factual dispute involving parties on one side and on the other side. Technically, the ruling binds only those parties. I suspect that even if technically the ruling in the Colorado case only binds the Colorado Secretary of State, nonetheless, it will be taken as a powerful signal of what the law is for other state and federal officials. You wrote in Politico that a win for plaintiffs, meaning Trump would be kept off the ballot, would, and we mentioned this earlier, be, quote, the beginning of a bloody unraveling of democratic norms. Why do you say that? I think it is easy to think, if you are opposed to former President Trump appearing on the 2024 uh, election ballot, that a ruling from the Supreme Court will end the dispute, the public debate, over Trump's candidacy in 2024. Even if the court rules, that is almost certainly not going to be the end of the matter. In the past few years, we've seen an increase in people's expressed willingness to commit acts of political violence. We've seen, particularly in the last couple of months, a debate about whether state officials are under an obligation to follow instructions from the Supreme Court. And as we saw in 2020 and 2021, there are often questions about how electors in the Electoral College for President can or should behave. It sounds like you're saying that some people, primarily conservatives or Republicans, might resist. They might defy the order, particularly at the state level. I think it would be very surprising if the court rules that Trump is barred from the ballot. I think it would be even more surprising if such a ruling did not spark open and active opposition from the general public, who are sympathetic to former President Trump, from state officials, and from the people who are involved in the counting and certification of the general election in November 2024. By the way, did I just hear you say you think it's unlikely that the Supreme Court will rule to keep Trump off the ballot? I think that the Supreme Court is unlikely to uh, rule that President Trump is disqualified, even from the Colorado ballot. 
There is a conservative legal thinker named David French who writes a column for The New York Times, and he makes the argument that the consequences of not disqualifying Trump would be even worse. He says if Trump runs and loses, we could see a repeat of January 6th, the attack. And if he wins, he could use the government to go after his political enemies. What do you say about that argument? I think it is completely correct to say, as David French has said, that whatever pathway the country takes between now and, let's say, mid-2025 is one characterized by a very high risk of political violence. Part of that risk is the violence that might follow from supporters of the former president venting their rage at an outcome that they don't like, whether that's a court decision or whether it's an electoral result. Part of that political violence might be the misuse of official power by people who don't think that public expression of democratic preferences is okay when those preferences don't align with their views. We are in a world in which there is a greater appetite for political violence among both individuals out in the general public and also people who work for the state in various capacities where they have the right to use force. And under those conditions, it is really hard to see how we navigate the next couple of years without some kind of serious political violence. So, Either way, no matter, you think that whether or not he's on the ballot, there's a risk of political violence? I think that the conditions that are creating, that are pushing political violence to the surface are going to exist regardless of the particular sequence of events that lead up to the 2024 election. I have a really hard time seeing how that how any pathway in which political violence is not a substantial risk. That's University of Chicago law professor Aziz Huck. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Some substantial gains on Wall Street today. The Dow picked up four-tenths of a percent. S&P picked up eight-tenths of a percent to notch a closing high of about five points, just short of 5,000. The Nasdaq rose nearly a full percent. UMass Lowell is establishing a new electronics lab to train students in the manufacture of printed circuit boards. A UMass spokeswoman says the global market for the boards reached over $86 billion last year. It's expected to hit $141 billion in less than a decade. The school estimates there are currently 2,400 vacant jobs in electronics manufacturing in the state. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Arts Emerson with the legendary Seven Fingers Troops U.S. premiere of Dual Reality, February 7th through 18th at the Cutler Majestic, artsemerson.org. And Donfoot Contracting, an integrated design building company committed to managing your entire home renovation project. At house or donfoot.com. Beauty on time. The Red Sox are teaming up with Netflix for a documentary series on the upcoming Sox season. The Sox A film crew will be embedded with the team from the start of spring training next week through the end of the year. The idea is to provide a window into what it takes to compete in a rabid sports environment. The docuseries will stream on Netflix sometime next year. A second project will look back at the historic 2004 season when the Sox broke the curse and won the World Series. The forecast is coming up.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. And Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. Send the perfect gift of Winston Flowers to your Valentine and support WBUR. Save 10% for a limited time at WBUR.org. Some clouds around tonight, lows about 28 degrees. Tomorrow, the sun shines back, warming things to the low 40s. 39 now in Boston at 421. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Former President Donald Trump will be returning to Nevada for tomorrow's caucuses, and he's virtually guaranteed to sweep its 26 delegates. On the stump, he's looking ahead to November and testing out some general election material for a crucial audience in one of the most pivotal pivotal states in this year's race. We want to get a great, beautiful mandate. And this November, we're going to win the swing state of Nevada. You ever think of it as a swing state? Is Trump's pitch resonating for Nevadans? NPR's Franco Ordonez spoke to voters there to find out. On a rainy day in the Las Vegas suburb of Henderson, Danielle Harper was lifting groceries from a cart into her car. The 39-year-old mom holds one person largely responsible, President Biden. While she's paying little attention to this week's primaries, she's very focused on November. I'm coming out of the grocery store pissed about what I just spent. I promise you I'm not happy about that grocery bill. $22 for a pack of chicken is out of line. This is America. This is crazy. But Harper isn't sure she can vote for Trump either. She knows her concerns about the economy and the direction of the country, though, make her a prime target for the Trump campaign. No, I'm absolutely exactly who they want. Middle class white lady. That's, yeah, that's, I'm the Republicans' target. They'll say anything that they can to get me to vote for them. Parked one row over at the grocery store, Denise Caballero would prefer not to vote for Trump either. But she's resigned to do so if it's between the former and current president. People would say, oh, you're, you're voting for the evil of the lesser two, but no, I'm voting for what I want for my kids for the future. While the U.S. economy has bounced back in many ways, Nevada has had a slower recovery. Because of the state's reliance on the hospitality and tourism industries, Nevada was exceptionally hard hit during COVID. Its unemployment rate is nearly two points higher than the rest of the country. Thank you. Trump stoked those concerns at a recent rally in East Las Vegas, blasting Biden about the economy and the chaos on the southern border. But let there be no doubt what Joe Biden is doing is a crime against our nation. It's an absolute betrayal of our country, and it's an atrocity against our Constitution. Nobody's ever seen anything like it. This week, he's been continuing that message with local radio and newspaper interviews. President Biden didn't pull any punches either when he visited Nevada ahead of the Democratic primaries, despite his assured victory. Donald, I got bad news for you, pal. It's too late. 
He hyped progress on the economy and warned of a nightmare should Trump return to office. You're one of only two presidents in American history, you and Herbert Hoover, who left office with fewer jobs than when you took office. The dueling visits are another sign of the state's importance, but both candidates will have to overcome a lack of enthusiasm around the likely rematch. Back in Henderson, Becca Meyer says she's not a huge fan of Biden, but she sees him as the better alternative to Trump. Clearly Trump is not the answer. We've been there. That feels so monstrous for how we treat humanity. Like that's not even an option, but we're gonna continue with complacency, which is what I feel like we're doing. And she feels guilty about how disengaged she is and worries others will be too, if they aren't already. This is the best we can come up with, really? Like, really? Franco, Ordonez, NPR News, Las Vegas. The Oklahoma Department of Education rolled out a new signing bonus program this school year to help address the state's ever-growing teacher shortage. But according to an investigation from nonprofit news site Oklahoma Watch and State Impact Oklahoma's Beth Wallace, the program turned into a nightmare for several teachers when the department demanded the bonus money back. Christina Stadelman sits at her dining room table, cradling her three-day-old son. She says she's trying to focus on enjoying this moment with her baby, instead of the demand letter from the Oklahoma State Department of Education in front of her. I haven't had the time to really wrap my head around it and really focus on this because I didn't want to ruin this moment. Stadelman teaches elementary special education in the Oklahoma City metro area. She applied to the state's new teacher signing bonus program, which used $16 million in funds left over from federal pandemic relief, plus funds allocated for students with disabilities. To be eligible, educators had to commit to teach elementary or special education for five years and couldn't have taught the year before in Oklahoma. She was awarded a $50,000 signing bonus, almost a whole year your salary. We were able to put um, a down payment on a van to be able to have more room and have more room for the kids. And it's helping me be able to take my six weeks um, so I can spend the time with my newborn. But in January, she got an email from the department that turned everything upside down. The money I received in November, they determined, unfortunately, that I did not meet the requirements and that I needed to pay the money back. The department said Stadelman wasn't eligible because she taught at an Oklahoma public school last year. She says she misunderstood the requirements when she applied. But records show she did list her employment history on her application. If I was trying to falsify, I wouldn't have provided that information. They made the mistake, not me. Stadelman isn't alone. State Impact found nine teachers were overpaid by at least $290,000. The department confirmed those figures, but after the investigation aired, said only four teachers were affected. A department spokesperson said these errors shouldn't diminish the overall success of the program, which awarded bonuses to over 500 teachers. But Cable Horkes wasn't thinking about clawbacks when her supervisor encouraged her to apply, mistakenly believing that she qualified. On her application, Bohorquez reported being employed at Epic Charter Schools last year. And as far as I understood, I met all the criteria. That's why my name got put in the hat in the first place. In November, she got the maximum bonus of $50,000. She used it to pay off debts to qualify for better college loans for her son. On January 13th, she received an email from the department telling her to return the full amount. When I read the letter, I threw up. Um, my financial situation is not going to be able to withstand this. <laughs> this is going to ruin me. 
you came in and you interrupted my life with the promise of grandeur. And then you tell me that, oh, whoops, <laughs> we messed up. Now your life is ruined. Bohorquez and Stadelman are suing the department for breach of contract. After State Impact's investigation aired, the state's top officials weighed in. Several State House Education Committee chairs called on the department to find a better solution than clawbacks. At a late January press conference, the state superintendent said there may be one. There is a path forward that does not require a, a payback from those teachers. So they can they can agree to certain things with our agency. Addendums to the contracts that say we agree to do this for a longer period of time. In other words, teachers might have to work longer than the original contract's five years in order to avoid having to pay back their bonuses. But the specifics are still up in the air. The department spokesperson notes it only incorrectly awarded 2% of the total amount of bonuses. But teachers say that number represents real people. And after the department awarded them life-changing amounts of money, they're left to deal with the life-changing fallout. For NPR News, I'm Beth Wallace in Tulsa. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Pakistan's upcoming elections are all about a man who isn't on the ballot. He's in jail, and his party is barred from campaigning. That story is coming up in about 10 minutes. Celtics are back in action tonight. They'll take on the Atlanta Hawks at the Garden. Tip-off is at 7.30. And the Celtics have signed a deal ahead of tomorrow's NBA trade deadline. Multiple reports say they'll get veteran forward Xavier Tillman from the Memphis Grizzlies. In exchange, Boston will send forward Lamar Stevens and two second-round draft picks. WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month. New benefits for 2024. BlueCrossMA.com slash go. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that bring joy to your life. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Send your gift nearly anywhere in New England and your support will bring you stories you won't hear anywhere else. Order now to save 10% on all four choices. They include a Flower of the Month subscription that begins with a rose arrangement on Valentine's Day. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The presidential primaries are in full swing, but Republican frontrunner Donald Trump and President Biden are very much looking ahead to the general election in November. The fate of Trump's bid to return to the White House is now in the hands of the U.S. Supreme Court, who will hear arguments tomorrow over Trump's claims of immunity from prosecution in the insurrection on the Capitol three years ago. Domenico Montanaro has more on a new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll about what voters think. 
Two-thirds say Trump should not be immune, but, and you can see why Trump does so well in a Republican primary, he has the base fully behind him. Two-thirds of Republicans say yes, he should be immune from prosecution. Almost 9 in 10 Republicans say that the investigations into his conduct are unfair. And of course, a primary isn't the same as a general election. And in a general election, three-quarters overall think he's done something wrong. If Trump were convicted of a crime, Biden would jump out to a lead. And with significant shifts come from women, suburban voters, and independents. That's NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Sweden is dropping its investigation into the 2022 sabotage of the Nord Stream gas pipeline, citing a lack of jurisdiction. The pipelines, which transport Russian gas to Germany under the Baltic Sea, were destroyed by a series of underwater explosions. Here's NPR's Charles Maines. Sweden said its investigators determined no Swedish nationals were involved in the destruction of the Nord Stream pipelines. As a result, Sweden was ending its inquiry and passing evidence onto Germany, which is conducting its own investigation into the blast. Meanwhile, in Moscow, the Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said Russia would now be closely watching to see how Germany pursued its investigation into what he called a terrorist act, noting German businesses had lost a lot as a result of the pipeline's destruction. Russia, Ukraine, and Ukraine's Western partners, including the U.S., have all traded accusations over who had motive to destroy the pipelines, just as all have denied involvement. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. U.S. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey joined most Senate Republicans and a few Democrats today in rejecting an immigration and border deal. Governor Maura Healey placed the blame on former President Donald Trump. Today, Healey told a state legislative committee reviewing her budget that the federal package would have included money to help care for migrants in Massachusetts. I talked to other governors, Republican and Democrat. There's a simple solution that can make this migrant crisis go away. It was negotiated over the last several weeks, in fact, months Healy, State Senate President Karen Spilka and State House Speaker Ron Mariano issued a statement today that calls on the federal government to approve some kind of immigration reform. The Massachusetts Gaming Commission is looking to crack down on sex trafficking at casinos. The commission plans to study the influence of the expansion of casinos on trafficking. The final report will explain how law enforcement and casino staff can identify and stop the practice. A program on Cape Cod that helps young people who are facing housing instability is expanding. Host Homes matches unhoused young people with homeowners who have an extra room. A pilot program has been running on the Lower Cape and Outer Cape. It's expanding thanks in part to a roughly $1 million federal grant received in partnership with the Barnstable County. Dan Gray is with the county and says the program makes sure placements are a good fit. Are there pets that the young person might be able to help with taking care of? Are there expectations around, I prefer that you don't be out after X time every night? You know, so that those conversations take place before anyone moves in to make sure that everyone is on the same page. Gray says the federal money will allow the program to pay hosts a monthly stipend of about $1,000 in return for providing a room. The forecast is ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lesley University. Put your creativity to work with a fine arts degree from Lesley University. Invest in your passion at lesley.edu. And Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. 39 degrees in Boston. We should see a slow but steady rise in temperatures through the rest of the week. The mid to upper 40s tomorrow and Friday could reach 60 on Saturday. This is WBUR. It's 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. 
and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Two days before New Hampshire's primary last month, thousands of people in the state received what seems to have been a robocall generated by artificial intelligence. A voice that sounded a lot like Joe Biden told people not to vote in the primary election. Authorities immediately announced an investigation, and now they say they know the source of the calls. The incident made the warnings that have been coming from many election experts suddenly very real. NPR's Miles Parks covers voting for us, and he's here in the studio. Hey, Miles. Hey, Ari. So who was responsible for that New Hampshire robocall? So yesterday, the New Hampshire Attorney General announced that they had traced the calls back to a Texas-based company called Life Corporation and to a man named Walter Monk. Uh, They are not pursuing charges at this point. They didn't announce that yesterday, but they say they have uh, sent out a cease and desist order as well as subpoenas for records and that their investigation is ongoing. Our colleagues at NHPR have reached out to all the parties involved here, have not heard anything back yet. But notably, we also learned more details about how many people actually receive these calls. They estimate that between 5,000 and 25,000 people receive these calls ahead of the primary, which obviously, like you said, makes this a very real concern looking ahead to November. That's huge. NHPR will say is the local member station, New Hampshire Public Radio. Um, The night of the primary, you were telling me how worried experts were about the potential for AI to spread disinformation in this year's elections. How much did this robocall drive that home? I mean, it is crazy how much this mimicking technology has gotten better really, really quickly. And the other thing I've heard a lot is something many experts have said is that AI gives the potential for tracking a lot better and and lets bad actors potentially target this sort of information as well. You think about an average person being able to send a message like this out to, say, 10,000 swing voters in Arizona. Uh, I talked about that with Joe Canary, who's an election expert who works for a company that works on verifiable election systems. The power afforded by new technologies that can be used by adversaries, it's going to be awful. I don't think we can do science fiction writing right now that's going to approach some of the things we're going to see over the next year. You know, I know hyper detailed voter files have been a part of campaigns for a while. But Canary said he cannot imagine all the different use cases when you start to add in AI. What kinds of tools do election officials have to counter this? How are they responding? I will say some election officials kind of pump the brakes on some of the concern. There's a wide spectrum of just how bad this could be this year. The arm of the Department of Homeland Security that works to secure elections put out a report last month that said AI will likely not introduce new risks, but could amplify the risks that already exist. So I think a lot of election officials are looking at this like cybersecurity and disinformation were two of our biggest concerns in 2020. We've been working on those and AI just presents the potential for those problems to get worse. I think one of the things that I keep hearing from election officials is just begging voters to go to trusted sources of information when they're thinking about voting and thinking about elections. Yeah. What advice do you have for voters to make sure they don't get duped by one of these? It sounds really basic, Ari, but getting comfortable going to your county or local officials website, usually that's a website that ends in .gov or even calling the office. I think election officials are kind of resigned at this point to the threat environment, that there is going to be bad information floating around there and building resilient voters, voters who, when 
when they watch a TikTok, when they get a robocall that sounds like Joe Biden telling them not to vote, their impulse is not going to be to listen to that, but instead to go check it uh, at, at a county website, for instance, because this stuff is just getting easier and easier to make. Well, I hope this is the last time you're here talking about a deep fake in this election, but I fear it might not I be. I doubt it will be. And Pierre's Miles Parks, thank you. Thanks, Ari. It's election day in Pakistan tomorrow, and analysts say the man not on the ballot will be front of mind for voters. On the line is NPR's international correspondent, Dia Hadid. She covers Pakistan from her base in Mumbai. Hi, Dia. Hi, Sasha. Would you give us the broad view first and tell us why these elections in Pakistan on Thursday matter? Well, they matter because Pakistan's stability is important for the world. It's a nuclear armed power in a strategic corner. Its neighbors include China, Afghanistan and Iran. But for the past few years, it hasn't been that stable. Inflation's been running hot. The country's been battered by droughts and floods made worse by climate change. And there's been a step up in militant attacks. Just today, more than 25 people were killed in bombings near offices of candidates. Are these elections expected to change anything? Analysts say it's unlikely. They say this election is about stopping one man. Have a listen here to Omar Warayish. He's a political analyst and a former correspondent. This election is all about one man who is sitting in jail and about stopping him from being able to become prime minister again. That's Imran Khan. Imran Khan. The backstory here is important. Imran Khan's a sporting hero who became a conservative populist. He won the last elections four years ago and became PM. Pakistan's most powerful institution, the army, was seen as paving the way for him to get to power by cracking down on his opponents. But they fell out. Khan was ousted. He was arrested last May. And his followers rioted on army installations. That was unprecedented in Pakistan, where there's a lot of deference to the military. Just last week, Khan was sentenced in three cases with jail time totaling more than 30 years, and his party isn't allowed to run in elections. So Khan's allies are running as independents. So because of everything Khan has been through, how much has he faded from public view? He hasn't faded at all. In fact, he appears to command a fiercely loyal base, and he's kept them fired up by appearing in constant communication, even though he's behind bars. You see, his party uses generative AI to create these Khan-like speeches that go viral on social media. This is Khan's close ally, Zulfi Bakhari. Imran Khan is a distinctive voice. He has a distinctive character. He has a distinctive look. When he writes something down or dictates something in, to his lawyers in prison, the social media team decided that we would AI generate his voice and create the message via that. And that has got him around those communication restrictions. Um, but because authorities have also cracked down on Khan supporters when they gather, they now do campaign rallies on TikTok. They've developed a bot that tells Pakistanis which independent is running for Khan in their district. And that's important in a country where people have really low literacy rates. By the way, hearing that use of AI to generate Khan's voice is just amazing to hear how that technology is being used. So Dia, Khan mm. is not on the ballot, but you're saying he sort of is on the ballot. Who else, though, could win this election? Analysts say no party on the ballot is expected to win a majority. They expect the next government will be a coalition, a coalition that's weak and easily influenced by the military. From everything you're describing, it sounds like this is not the end of Khan quite yet. Goodness, no. There's a lot of hurly-burly in Pakistani politics, and today's jailed politician could be tomorrow's favourite son. 
You could just ask the man who may become prime minister this time around, Nawaz Sharif. He was thrown out of power in 2017, analysts say in a move engineered by the military, and now they appear to be helping him get back into that job. Such complicated Pakistani politics. That's NPR's Dia Hadid. Thank you. You're welcome, Sasha. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Before we start our next story, a warning. This piece contains some discussion of suicide. It's been 20 years since Oregon voters allowed people with terminal illnesses to end their own lives with the help of a doctor. Since then, nine other states and Washington, D.C. have approved their own laws, and more than a dozen state legislatures are considering similar bills. That includes Virginia, where the issue is deeply personal for some residents. Ben Pavier with member station VPM has more. In 2022, Barbara Green got news no one wants to hear. She had pancreatic cancer and likely less than a year left to live. It takes you a while to come down off that terror. The 79-year-old has defied the odds, but she says she's pragmatic about what comes next. I'm told it's a, it's a fatal disease. There's no cure for pancreatic cancer. It will kill me at some point. In nearly a dozen states, patients like Green can get lethal drugs from a doctor. It's an option for mentally capable patients who've been given a prognosis of six months or less to live. Green's calling Virginia lawmakers as they debate bills that would add the option in the Commonwealth. If, if I'm in charge of my body through my whole life and I can refuse chemotherapy or authorize it, why can't I decide how my death is going to occur? The bills are part of a nationwide push from the advocacy group Compassion and Choices. The group CEO, Kim Callanan, says states are recognizing the popularity of the option as boomers age. Death is not partisan. And when you look at polling data, Democrats, Republicans, independents, libertarians, all of them are supportive of this option. Callanan's careful to refer to the choice as medical aid in dying, not assisted suicide. When you talk to people who are choosing this option, they get deeply, deeply offended if you refer to it as assisted suicide. Most of them desperately want to live, but unfortunately, a disease is taking their life and they can't. Critics say rhetoric like aid in dying is a euphemism that hides ethical issues. A range of groups oppose the bills, including some religious groups, disability rights advocates, and the American Medical Association. Olivia Gans-Turner is with the Virginia Society for Human Life. If you are going to die, you're going to die. Let's use that time in a way that assists you to be lifted up emotionally, physically, and those around you. Turner says allowing a person to take the medication has ripple effects on loved ones and communities. So it's much bigger than the individual, and it's much more complicated than just, I want to have control. It's, what does that mean for our entire society? The debate has hit home for Virginia Congresswoman Jennifer Wexton. Last year, the 55-year-old was diagnosed with progressive supernuclear palsy, a rare terminal illness she describes as Parkinson's on steroids. 
At a press conference last month, Wexton's friend, State Senator Jennifer Boisco, read a letter from Wexton describing the disease. It has robbed me, my family, and the many people in my life who I love and who love me so very much. But if this bill becomes law in Virginia, it would return the control over when and where and how our stories end to us. It's an argument that has so far won over Virginia Democrats who control the state legislature. If the bill fails in Virginia, patients like Wexton may have options, at least if they can travel. Last year, the governors of Oregon and Vermont signed laws allowing people to access the medication even if they live in a different state. For NPR News, I'm Ben Pavier in Richmond. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide or is in crisis, call or text 988 to reach the Suicide in Crisis Lifeline. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. A bipartisan Senate bill to reduce and manage the surge of migrants coming to the U.S.-Mexico border has been derailed by Republicans. Now Democrats are moving to Plan B. We'll explore the options after 5 o'clock here at 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses, stanhopeframers.com, and the Umbrella Arts Center, presenting Broadway star Jeremy Jordan in an intimate concert this Friday and Saturday. Tickets at theumbrellaarts.org. Pretty nice day today, leading to a lot of clouds around tonight. Temperatures about 28 degrees. For tomorrow, mainly sunny once again. Temperatures warm to the low 40s. 39 degrees now in Boston at 449. I'm Gabriela Emanuel, a reporter here at WBUR. Growing up, I remember working through these learn-to-read books while a lot of my classmates were just whizzing through chapter books. I had bad dyslexia. My parents would come home from these long days at work, 10, 12-hour shifts, and they'd sit down with me, and we'd sound out syllables and then string it into words. Now that I have my own kids, I think about their commitment differently. I see the support, the love that it takes to help someone else do something that's hard for them. This year, I will be sending each of them a bouquet of Winston flowers through WBUR. We used to listen to the station together. I found it easier than reading the newspaper, which was hard for me. If you want to thank someone, consider sending Winston flowers. It's a way to say thank you and also support the news at the same time. Visit WBUR.org to get started. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The border city of Eagle Pass, Texas, is caught in a fight over who controls the southern border. Texas officials are restricting federal Border Patrol agents' access to a riverfront park, accusing the Biden administration of not being tough enough on illegal crossings. Now, Republican Governor Greg Abbott is vowing to expand his aggressive border operations. As Texas Public Radio's David Martin Davies reports, this standoff is attracting far-right activists and leaving many in Eagle Pass on edge. It's your job to protect America from criminals. Do it. Maxwell Hayes is unleashing his frustrations on a pair of Eagle Pass police officers who are calmly absorbing the abuse. The police are barricading the streets that lead to Shelby Park. That's where the Texas National Guard is taken over. It fronts two and a half miles of the Rio Grande, 
but the riverbank now is piled high with row after row of razor wire and a wall built out of steel shipping containers. I'm supposed to be down there right now protesting these people coming across my border. Hayes, a supporter of far-right militias, traveled to Eagle Pass from Colorado to join the so-called Take Our Border Back convoy, a mix of Trump supporters, migration hawks, election deniers, and conspiracy theorists. We got billions of dollars going to Ukraine, massacring Russians, and nobody cares about that massacre. The police tell Hayes the area is closed because of growing concerns about violence, reports of gunfire, and a local bank robbery. This all has locals anxious and feeling caught in the middle. They're alarmed at seeing their once quiet city militarized and becoming a magnet for extremists. There's some people that are being confrontational, be peaceful. Amber Duncan and her five children live next door to Shelby Park. They're watching what she calls chaos in front of her home. This is where I live. Um, cops are worried about us because they know us. You know, there's some police law enforcement familiar with me like, be careful with the kids, it's gonna get wild. Make sure you're safe. Duncan says she's worried about the potential for an outbreak of violence similar to the 2019 El Paso Walmart shooting that targeted Mexican-Americans. 23 people were murdered by an anti-immigration white nationalist. Now Eagle Pass is attracting zealots who claim the border is wide open, repeating the language used by Texas Governor Greg Abbott and former President Trump. This past weekend, a few thousand people poured into the border city to show their support for Abbott and his court battle over the Border Patrol's cutting of the razor wire stacked along the Rio Grande. The Supreme Court recently sided with the Biden administration and lifted a stay, allowing the Border Patrol to cut the barbed wire. But Abbott says the high court is wrong and isn't backing down. Because Joe Biden has completely abdicated and abandoned his responsibility to enforce the laws of the United States. I have used a clause in the Constitution that empowers states to defend themselves. It's an open question if Abbott's interpretation of the Constitution will pass with the Supreme Court, but the governor insists Shelby Park is just the beginning. We're not going to contain ourselves just to this park. Uh, we are expanding to further areas to make sure that we will expand our level of deterrence and denial of illegal entry into the United States. But residents of Eagle Pass, such as Jesse Fuentes, say he's more worried about the dangers stirred up by Abbott than the migrants and blames the governor for using inflammatory border rhetoric. I hate the, the fact that he's put a damn target on my community and uh, he doesn't care. He just wants to push his political narrative and put us in peril. But Bob Bagley, a member of the anti-migration convoy, says Texas taking the park is necessary for national security. No country can withstand 10 to 12 million people coming in and invading their country. Bagley drove from the Houston area. He was at the Capitol during the January 6th insurrection, but he says he didn't go inside. He calls illegal migration a grave threat to the future of America. They're, they're destroying our economy. Our businesses, people here in this, in this county, in this city here in Eagle, in Eagle Pass, are afraid to come out at night to be on the streets. But Eagle Pass residents say the real invasion is from the far-right activists who are being inspired by Abbott. Juanita Martinez is a local Democratic activist. Mr. Abbott, get the hell out of our city. Get the hell out of our park. We want you out. 
There are several pending federal legal challenges to Abbott's actions at the border, and if President holds, Texas will lose. But given Abbott's refusal to recognize the Supreme Court's ruling on the razor wire, tensions will continue to mount in Shelby Park and all along the Texas-Mexico border. For NPR News, I'm David Martin Davies in Eagle Pass, Texas. It's Mardi Gras season, and in New Orleans, that means king cake. Maybe you've seen one. It's the city's signature loaf with purple, green, and gold sugar, and a little baby hidden inside. But not all king cakes are created equal. WWNO's Aubrey Juhas met a woman who has come up with a unique ranking system. Kate Clark's love of king cake runs deep. I still remember my first king cake. I was in the first grade. It was a classic brioche with cinnamon. Clark says it was love at first bite. And I was like, this may be the greatest thing I've ever tasted. I meet her at one of her favorite bakeries, Bittersweet Confections in downtown New Orleans. It's king cake season. Next to us, there's a table piled high with cakes. Just a tiny fraction of the more than 8,000 the bakery will make this year. Clark is an attorney and works down the street. But she also moonlights as an artist and has a surprise for the bakery. It's a poster of sorts and her latest piece of art. This for y'all, here for the board. <laughs> <laughs> At the show, oh my God, she's gonna love this. What is it? It's King Cakeopoly, so. King Cakeopoly, like Monopoly. The real estate board game where properties are sorted by color and value. Clark illustrated a special version of the game, where instead of the traditional properties, she subbed and ranked local king cakes. She says the board started as a way for her and her colleagues to try new king cakes. Like last year, I joked that your reward was gaining 10 pounds. Cakes are judged based on taste, but also consistency, frosting, and even availability. The board starts at the Mediterranean Avenue of king cakes, Walmart. Next. And this year, it's the airport gift store king cake. Now, Clark is careful to point out that her game is a work of satire. She's got to cover herself legally. Remember, she's an attorney. After the lowest-rung cakes, the board moves on to the grocery store variety. And then as you work your way around, you get... You get to the top tier of New Orleans bakeries. You know, many people have opinions about their favorite ones. Are these kind of, you know, the bittersweet, the Haydells, the Manny Randazzo, the Dongfeng, and the Haido? I think those are... It's very hard to rank those because they're all a little different, but they're all really good. She did rank them, though. The boardwalk of king cakes? It's Haido. After discussing all manner of king cakes, it's time to eat bittersweets. Clark cuts herself a slice and takes a really big bite. (laughs) You know that moment in Ratatouille when the food critic tastes, tastes the ratatouille and it takes him back to childhood? This tastes like my mother's cinnamon rolls. Clark says she loves this time of year because it brings out the city's most whimsical side. She says the board is her contribution to the magic that is Mardi Gras. From PR News, I'm Aubrey Juhas in New Orleans. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher is committed to helping clients stay on track to reach their financial goals and enjoy a comfortable retirement. FisherInvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at LodestarFoundation.org. 
From BritBox, where viewers can stream new seasons of British detective series including Vera, Father Brown, Death in Paradise, and more. Available at BritBox.com NPR. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is 90.9 WBUR. Tomorrow morning at 945, the Supreme Court hears oral arguments on whether former President Donald Trump can be excluded from the ballot because of his role in the January 6th attacks on the Capitol. Join us for live coverage tomorrow again at 945 a.m. here at 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Malm, building client relationships one transaction at a time. Learn more at davismalm.com. D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's in the Middle East to try to secure a temporary halt in fighting between Israel and Hamas. Israel's prime minister responded to the call by saying the plan is delusional, but Blinken thinks there's still hope. We also see space in what came back to pursue negotiations to see if we can get to an agreement. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also, people in Gaza are increasingly voicing their anger at Hamas's handling of the war with Israel and the heavy costs civilians have paid. Should former President Donald Trump be disqualified from Colorado's primary ballot? The U.S. Supreme Court is set to hear arguments tomorrow on whether he should be disqualified. Based on the 14th Amendment, a closer look at the 14th is coming up. Also, a new joint app that aims to be one-stop shopping for online sports. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is sharply critical of demands Hamas has set out for a proposed ceasefire over the war in Gaza. As NPR's Greg Myrie explains, it comes just a day after Hamas offered a generally positive response to ongoing negotiations. Speaking on national television, Prime Minister Netanyahu said the Hamas proposal includes, quote, ludicrous demands. Hamas is seeking a ceasefire that would last many weeks, eventually leading to the war's end and the withdrawal of Israeli troops from Gaza. Netanyahu, who often calls for the destruction of Hamas, said there is no solution besides total victory. Israel appears open to a limited ceasefire, and Netanyahu faces domestic pressure to win the release of Israeli hostages held by Hamas. But it appears the two sides are still far apart, despite the latest visit by U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who met Netanyahu on Wednesday. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Tel Aviv. A U.S. drone strike in Baghdad has killed at least one leader of an Iranian-backed militia, according to the Pentagon. U.S. official telling NPR leader of the militant group Qatab Hezbollah was killed in the nighttime drone strike. The name has not been released, and there are reports that one or two additional leaders were killed. Local video taken to the scene showed a car in flames. The group has previously claimed responsibility for numerous attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq. The latest drone strike on a busy Baghdad street will likely put more pressure on the Iraqi government, which has pushed for 2,500 U.S. troops to leave the country. 
The U.S. Census Bureau says it's dropping a proposal to change how it produces statistics about people with disabilities after receiving public pushback. Zimgar's Hansi Luang reports the proposal could have shrunk the country's estimated rate of disability by about 40 percent. The Census Bureau's proposal would have aligned its annual American Community Survey with international standards. Instead of asking yes or no questions about whether a person has difficulty with certain activities, the Bureau would have asked people to rate their level of difficulty and count only the people who say they have a lot of difficulty or cannot do the activity at all. Those who say they have some difficulty would have been left out of the main disability estimates. But many disability advocates raised concerns that change would have skewed official statistics about people with disabilities. It could have made it harder to make sure disabled people have access to housing, health care, and civil rights protections. Veer says it plans to meet with disabled community members to discuss their data needs. Hansi Wong, NPR News. It hasn't happened in decades and partly reflects growing tension between Washington and Beijing. New numbers from the Commerce Department showing Mexico last year surpassed China as the leading source of goods imported to the U.S. Government numbers show the value of goods imported to the U.S. from Mexico up nearly 5 percent for the previous year. At the same time, the value of Chinese imports fell by 20 percent. Another update for financial markets, though the broader market fell short of the 5,000, the NASDAQ was up 147 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Maura Healy's latest pick for the state's highest court is raising some eyebrows. The nominee is State Appeals Court Judge uh, Gabrielle Wolhogen. She and the governor had a long-term relationship when Healy was state attorney general. Here's WBUR's Fausto Menard. The head of the state Republican Party calls the pick highly inappropriate. In a statement, Amy Carnevale calls on Healy to withdraw the nomination or for the governor's counsel to reject the nominee. Martin Murphy is a Boston lawyer who served on the Judicial Nomination Commission for the Supreme Judicial Court. He calls Wallahogin the right pick. Justice Wallahogin was the best qualified candidate for the job. She was the best qualified appellate judge judge of any kind and lawyer in the state, that there was no one more qualified than she was. If the pick is not withdrawn, it will go to the governor's council at a later date for confirmation. This is Healy's second pick for the SJC since she took office just over a year ago. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. A former Somerville attorney has been sentenced to two years in federal prison for attempting to bribe the Medford police chief to approve a recreational marijuana license. Federal prosecutors say 56-year-old Sean O'Donovan approached a family member of the chief and offered the bribe to have the chief pressure the mayor to approve the client's application. The chief then alerted federal officials. O'Donovan was convicted last October and sentenced today. The New England Aquarium is rehabilitating more than 50 sea turtles. Officials are caring for some turtles that were stunned by cold water and washed up on Cape Cod Bay. Many of them are endangered Kemp Ridley sea turtles. Adam Kennedy is the director of the Sea Turtle Hospital at the aquarium. He says climate change and a warming Gulf of Maine are increasing the number of strandings. That kind of allows these turtles to really kind of funnel into Cape Cod Bay during the summer, um, whereas before that cold water would have kind of kept them out at sea and made them swim south and then kind of come in dur- into the mid-Atlantic. So you know, that's certainly a more newer phenomenon to see hundreds of Kemp's Ridley's stranding on Cape Cod, um, whereas before it was much smaller numbers. Kennedy expects many of the turtles to be released down south in April. In the forecast, should be cloudy and dry overnight tonight. Temperatures about 28 for a low. Sunshine's back tomorrow should stay the day. Highs in the mid-40s. Friday, sunshine and clouds both turning breezy and milder. Could reach 50 degrees on Friday. 38 now in Boston at 5.07. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. 
Other contributors include Workday. With AI at the core of its platform, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR platform for a changing world. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The Supreme Court considers the 14th Amendment tomorrow to determine whether former President Donald Trump will be barred from the primary ballot in Colorado. While the words of the 14th Amendment are all over the news right now, the document itself is hidden from public view at the National Archives. We'll take you there in a moment. And just down the mall, it was another heated and chaotic day on Capitol Hill. Republicans derailed a bipartisan Senate bill to reduce and manage the surge of migrants approaching the U.S.-Mexico border. Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema, an independent, bashed her GOP colleagues for demanding that any bill, including funding for Ukraine, also had to include border reforms, only to reverse themselves in just 48 hours. Partisanship won. The Senate has failed Arizona. Shameful. NPR congressional correspondent Deidre Walsh joins us from the Capitol. Hi, Deidre. Hey, Sasha. That border bill vote was simply to start debate on the legislation. Why couldn't they agree to do that? Well, it's 2024, and really the political noise about the border security issue really drowned out and overpowered this policy debate. But this bill was blocked because the same Republicans who insisted on changing the administration's border policies in order to agree to this money for Ukraine and Israel reversed themselves. 60 votes were needed to advance this bill in the Senate. It only got 49. Only four Senate Republicans agreed to advance this bill. A small group of Democrats also had issues with the bill and opposed it. But Republicans have been pushing for four months to attach border to this foreign assistance package. But between Sunday night, when this bipartisan deal was finally released, and yesterday, basically two days, most Republicans had walked away. Um, But before the deal was even done, the party's 2024 presidential nominee, Donald Trump, had lobbied congressional Republicans to to kill it. Uh, And that really caused most Republicans to shift. Uh, Also, House Speaker Mike Johnson dismissed the bill as dead on arrival before it was even out. And to confirm, Republicans helped write this bill and top Republican leadership aides were at the negotiating table. Right. The lead Republican negotiator, Oklahoma Senator Jim Langford, vigorously defended the deal today on the Senate floor. He was very blunt about the political forces that were against anything that addressed the crisis at the border. Langford revealed today that a popular commentator he didn't name threatened him about getting a deal with Democrats and described what that person told him. That told me flat out, if you try to move a bill that solves the border crisis during this presidential year, I will do whatever I can to destroy you because I do not want you to solve this during the presidential election. And of course, the same time this gridlock is happening, record numbers of migrants continue to approach the border. The impact of that is being felt felt all across the country. Is there any chance Congress can or will do anything about that? No, I mean, it really doesn't look like uh, any kind of bipartisanship's really realistic in this uh, political year. Immigration policy has always been a thorny political issue. I covered the last serious effort at immigration reform. That was a much more comprehensive immigration bill a decade ago, and that failed. 
Trump has made it clear he wants to use this issue against President Biden. And Biden's handling of the border is really one of his weakest issues, according to the polls. But Democrats are starting to think they can flip the script on this issue of the border because Republicans blocked this bipartisan deal. I talked to Senator Gary Peters. He's the head of the Senate Democrats campaign committee who thinks Democrats should try to go on the defense. So they own the problem. Uh, From this point forward, congressional Republicans own this problem. And President Biden was making that same argument from the White House yesterday. And so Democrats moved to a plan B. What is their plan, really? Senate Majority Leader moved to bring up a bill that would just approve the billions of dollars of aid to Ukraine and Israel. These are things that do have bipartisan support in the Senate. Many Republicans who oppose the border provisions said they want to move this foreign assistance package. That, too, appears to be slightly bogged down. They're going to need 60 votes to work on that, and they still don't have agreement yet on that. And Paris Deirdre Walsh, thank you. Thank you. Israel is dismissing Hamas proposals on a new hostage deal Thank and you. ceasefire in Gaza. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu called the plan delusional. Surrendering to Hamas's delusional demands won't lead to freeing the captives, Netanyahu said. It will just invite another massacre. Netanyahu promised that the Israeli military would press on in Gaza until it had achieved what he called absolute victory over Hamas. Those comments came just hours after he met with America's top diplomat, who's in the region trying to get both sides to agree to a ceasefire and the release of hostages. NPR's Michelle Kellerman is traveling with Secretary of State Antony Blinken. She's in Tel Aviv tonight. Hi, Michelle. Hi there, Ari. There were some hopes earlier in the de- earlier in the day that a ceasefire deal could be reached. Is that idea now extinguished? Well, you know, there... Secretary Blinken really doesn't think so. Take a listen to how he described the state of play at his news conference tonight. While there are some clear non-starters in Hamas's response, uh, we do think it creates space for agreement to be reached. And we will work at that relentlessly until we get there. Sorry, Michelle, are you there? Yeah, sorry. It's... No problem. Just go ahead. Um, you were talking sorry, about what Blinken said earlier now? today. Can we can hear you. Yep. Okay, sorry. Um, yeah, you know, so what he's talking about is that Hamas's response um, to a plan that the U.S., Qatar, and Egypt have been discussing, that's a phased approach to ending the war, starting with a 45-day ceasefire, more aid to Gaza, and the release of civilians being held by Hamas as hostages. The goal is to eventually get all of the hostages out, including the bodies of dead Israelis. But what Hamas wants is to get Israeli troops out, and it wants Israel to release Palestinian prisoners, including some facing life terms. Some of that might be what Blinken was referring to as non-starters. So where do the negotiations go from here, if, if at all? Yeah, I mean, a lot of scrambling behind the scenes, I think, to see if there is room for negotiation, as Blinken seems to think. Hamas gave um, its counterproposals to Qatar just yesterday, and no one expected the talks really to end there. But the problem is that it's getting harder and harder to pass messages to and from Hamas leaders inside Gaza, so any further discussions will take take time as the Israelis continue to press their offensive. Does that mean Blinken will be returning to the U.S. from this whirlwind Mideast trip without anything to show for his travels? Well, certainly no breakthroughs at this time, though I 
don't think his aides thought there would be. Um, the one thing that he's tried to do is talk about the future, a future that could benefit Israel and Palestinians, but one that would require some pretty fundamental decisions. You know, he's talking about how Saudi Arabia would normalize ties with Israel, for instance, if there's, there's an end to the war in Gaza and a pathway to Palestinian statehood. But he says these are things that the Israelis are going to have to decide. Take a listen. All that we can do is to show what the, the possibilities are, what the options are, what the future could be, and compare it to the alternative. And the alternative right now uh, looks like an endless cycle of violence uh, and destruction and despair. That's certainly what we're seeing in Gaza right now. That's NPR diplomatic correspondent Michelle Kellerman traveling with Secretary of State Antony Blinken in Tel Aviv. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. Should former President Donald Trump be disqualified from Colorado's primary ballot? On Thursday, the Supreme Court is set to hear arguments on that question based on the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. NPR's Luke Garrett got an exclusive and up-close look at the Civil War-era document at the center of this case. The original 14th Amendment is bound in a red leather book the size of a pizza box. Within this same volume are public laws from the 39th Congress. That's Jane Fitzgerald, senior archivist at the National Archives. She says, unlike its older cousin, the Bill of Rights, the 14th Amendment isn't stored in the rotunda at the National Archives. It hasn't been on display for over a decade. Back in 2013, it was briefly on display before it was cycled out of an exhibit. Since then, it's been stored in a protective box in a cold room inside the research wing of the archives. But once in a while, it sees the light of day. And after much careful and persistent flipping, we finally arrived at the original document. The pages are parchment, which is derived from animal skin. That's Morgan Browning, senior conservator at the National Archives. The 14th Amendment is on two pages, and it consists of iron galling text, the cursive strokes of thin black ink on parchment send your eyes on a roller coaster ride back in time. So I read parts of Section 3 slowly. No person shall hold any office who, having previously taken an oath to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection. For Browning, this document is alive. All the documents in this building to some extent are living documents because they are accessed by the public. But the 14th Amendment is delicate and fragile, susceptible to the slightest change in light, temperature and humidity, something Browning kept his eye on during the entire visit. The parchment absorbs the humidity. After only a few minutes in the room with a few people and some big windows, the 14th Amendment started to react to its new environment. So this is curling up. That's Browning noting that the corners of the parchment were starting to turn upwards. Can I just run down to the lab super quickly just to get a little strap? Instead of going through all that trouble, we decided to say goodbye to this founding document. Well, it's always a thrill. I mean, it never gets you know boring in any way, shape or form. With the 14th Amendment heading back to storage, the ideas and laws it enshrines are now up for review at the Supreme Court. Inside the National Archives, Luke Garrett, NPR News, Washington.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR's All Things Considered, for decades, efforts to reform the U.S. immigration system have failed. Why? There are very few members of Congress that have a real strong, detailed understanding of the law, the policy, and how it actually operates. A closer look at this long-running problem coming up in about 15 minutes here at 90.9 WBUR. Long-stemmed red roses or the ultimate romance arrangement. Send the perfect gift from Winston Flowers and support WBUR at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include the Executive Ph.D. Program in Business at Bentley. Three years part-time for experienced professionals seeking research skills. Info sessions February 9th and 21st. And Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. There's some substantial gains on Wall Street today. The Dow picked up four-tenths of a percent. S&P pulled in eight-tenths of a percent, notching a closing high of about five points short of 5,000. The Nasdaq rose nearly a full percent. Boston-based restaurant management software company Toast is winning over some large-chain hotel customers. Toast has inked a deal with Choice Hotels International, which runs Cambry Hotels and Radisson Brands. The core of Toast clientele has been small-chain restaurants or those with a single location. Financial terms of the deal were not disclosed. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ZTech Associates, providing on-site and remote IT support, cybersecurity, and compliance for Boston-area biotechs, financial firms, and more. ZTechNet.com. And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. Should be cloudy and dry tonight. Tomorrow, sunshine's back. Should stay the day with temperatures in the mid-40s. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person at yptc.com NPR. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Cheers rang out in Gaza last night at the news that Hamas responded to an offer for a ceasefire. But as NPR's Daniel Estrin reports, Hamas also faces widespread criticism in Gaza from civilians who are paying a heavy cost. There have been a few rare protests in Gaza in recent weeks. In this video of one recent protest shared on social media, protesters chant, the people want a ceasefire. They name the leaders of Israel and Hamas, Netanyahu and Sinwar, enough war and enough destruction. The anger at Israel is clear. It's the deadliest war Palestinians have ever faced. But calling out Hamas is noteworthy. First, because Hamas does not tolerate dissent and has broken up protests over the years. And second, because Palestinians tend to rally around Hamas during wartime for standing up to Israeli oppression. But NPR's producer in Gaza, Anas Baba, has documented growing voices of dissent. Hamas has destroyed us, says Adnan Abdelal. 
He had to flee his home and then fled for safety three more times. Now he's living out of a backpack. Here's what he says about Hamas's decision to ambush Israel on October 7th. I don't know if they thought about it and what would happen to us. We didn't receive any warning to leave. Now we just look for a loaf of bread to eat. During the war, bread lines last hours. Bakeries don't have enough flour, fuel, and cooking gas. Suher Safi says Hamas should, quote, give consideration to their people. Every shepherd is responsible for his flock. 30-year-old Abdesalam al-Ghul says Hamas's attack was an honorable act against Israeli oppression. But he says Hamas miscalculated because Hezbollah and Iran didn't join the attack. He says Hamas prepared its fighters for this war, but not its civilians. He says the resistance says it's ready for rounds of combat for months and years. So are we, but provide us with our daily bread so we resist together. On Facebook, many Gazans have been alluding to their frustration with Hamas's leader. One man named Sami al-Hilu wrote, A captain takes the ship to where the people want. A pirate takes the ship to where he wants. A man named Mohanad Meherez wrote, An entire generation in Gaza never saw a tank in their lives. The crazy man brought the tanks to the center of the refugee camp because of stupidity. To be clear, Hamas still has supporters in Gaza. A recent poll found more than half of Gazans support Hamas's decision to attack October 7th. Most of those surveyed didn't think Hamas committed atrocities that day. And more than half think Hamas will survive the war, despite Israel's goal to crush it. Hamas is still managing to attack Israeli soldiers, and Hamas has even reasserted itself as a governing force, paying partial salaries to civil servants and sending police officers to patrol. Because uh, Hamas, uh, they consider that uh, they are the winner in this war. Dolfikar Sawerjo is in Gaza. He used to be active in a leftist Palestinian political party. The message, he says, Hamas wants to project? They didn't lose uh, the war because Hamas, uh, until now, Hamas is Hamas. The bigger war, as he puts it, is what Hamas will face after the fighting is over, the colossal task of rebuilding a decimated Gaza. He thinks Hamas will have to change from an outlier opposition force to a participant in the internationally recognized Palestinian movement, the PLO, committed to the goal of an independent Palestinian state alongside Israel. Hamas, they are smart enough to understand what's happening and what is coming in the future. Because of that, they will change. People will obligate them to change because they will not accept to have another war, another catastrophe. People will not accept to continue this forever. As he puts it, I lost my job, my business. I lost my house. I lost everything. I want Hamas to do something for me. Daniel Estrin, NPR News. There's a giant new live sports streaming service coming from the companies behind ESPN, Fox Sports, TBS, and TNT. They're teaming up to combine their coverage of pro football, basketball, baseball, college sports, and a lot of other events. NPR TV critic Eric Deggins is here with more. Hi, Eric. Hi. 
Does this streaming service even have a name yet? What more can you tell us about it? No, it doesn't have a name. And more importantly, it doesn't have a price attached yet. So we've got these three companies, Disney, Fox, and Warner Brothers Discovery, uh, which announced that they are forming a joint venture to create a streaming service that would bring together sports programming from outlets like ESPN, ESPN+, ABC, Fox Sports, TBS, much more. Each of these three companies would own one-third of the new entity, and they would license their content to this new streaming service. Now, the service is going to have its own brand, its own name, an independent management team. And they expect the sports that they're going to feature will cover the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, pro hockey, college sports, golf, and much more. They say that subscribers are going to be able to buy the service in a bundle with other services that the companies control like Hulu, Disney Plus, and Max, and is planned to launch sometime this fall. This sounds like such a big announcement. And at a time when a lot of streamers are scaling back their ambitions, why do you think this is happening now? My hunch is that we've reached a crucial moment in streaming and sports. I mean, live sports is one of the few areas of TV programming that streaming services have not been able to overshadow or dominate. And you've got these three companies, Disney, Fox, and Warner Brothers Discovery, that have significant operations in cable and broadcast TV. So they're coming together, they're creating this platform that's going to allow them to control how live sports migrates over to streaming. And it's going to help them compete with rivals like Amazon and Netflix, who have the financial resources of Silicon Valley. Uh, It's comparable to the time a while ago when the TV networks teamed up to create Hulu. Now, Disney mostly owns it now, but when it was created, it was a part partnership between a lot of companies, including NBC and Disney, to stream network TV outside of YouTube. What's this going to mean for consumers? I mean, for a diehard sports fan like me, what impact will it have? Well, it's tough to know that because we don't know how much it's going to cost. Yes, it's yet another streaming service to buy. But a comparable streaming service like YouTube TV or Fubo costs anywhere from about $70 a month to $100 monthly. So if they undercut that price with something that's like $50 a month, that would be pretty attractive to sports fans. And if you can offer them a place where they can access a lot of their most important sporting events in one place, I think people are going to appreciate that. Now, this partnership doesn't include Comcast, which has NBC Sports, or Paramount Global, which has CBS Sports. So there's still some big events like perhaps the Olympics, which won't necessarily be fully featured on this service. And how do you think this is all going to affect the TV industry generally? Is it going to bring big changes to sports and streaming? Yeah, without a doubt. If you're the NFL or any of these sports leagues, you are smiling ear to ear right now because you know the value of your media agreements just went through the roof. Amazon and Netflix and these other companies are going to have to make some tough decisions about stepping up on how much they want to spend to compete. And the new platform has got to work better than some of these sports streaming platforms that are confusing and a challenge to use that consumers are complaining about. NPR TV critic Eric Deggins, thanks. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Boston Celtics take on the Atlanta Hawks at the Garden tonight, 7.30 start time. And the Celts have sealed a deal ahead of tomorrow's NBA trade deadline. Multiple reports today say the Seas will get veteran forward Xavier Tillman from the Memphis Grizzlies. In exchange, Boston will send forward Lamar Stevens and two second-round draft picks. In the forecast overnight tonight, should be a dry night. Temperatures just about 28 degrees. And for tomorrow, nice and sunny, warmer. Temperatures around 40 degrees or the low 40s. WBUR supporters include Arts Thursdays at Harvard, Sounds of the Americas, Jazz with Yosvani Terry and Friends. Tomorrow at 7 p.m., 
harvard.edu slash artsthursdays, and Comcast Business, helping businesses go further with internet and phone solutions designed to prepare them for the future. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Sending your Valentine Winston Flowers from WBUR creates stories that help you think more deeply about the world. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Send your gift almost anywhere in New England and your support of WBUR will enrich the lives of thousands of listeners in Boston and beyond. Order now to save 10% on all four choices, including a dozen long-stemmed red roses. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, Republican lawmakers in the House and Senate have effectively killed a bipartisan immigration deal that had been worked on for months now. The vote was 49 to 50, well below the 60 votes needed to start debate on the bill. Democratic Senator Chris Coons of Delaware expressing his frustration. Look, it is deeply disheartening that after demanding four months uh, that we uh, take up and pass changes in border policy, And after James Langford, uh, one of the most conservative people I've ever been friends with, um, put his whole heart into it for four months, that they're just turning around and abandoning it. Republican Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri voted against the measure and had this to say afterward. Obviously, the conference is not, I mean, not very happy. This has not been a... This has not been a great display the last three months, and uh, I really put that down to leadership. I mean, who can follow the the position changes by the hour, it seems. President Biden says Congress will run out of money for immigration law enforcement if Congress doesn't pass a border bill soon. A pair of bombings in Pakistan have hit the offices of candidates running in tomorrow's elections, killing more than 20 people. Here's NPR's Dia Hadid from Mumbai. Analysts say upcoming elections are unlikely to offer change to a country that's been lurching from crisis to crisis. Omar Warayish is an independent political analyst. This election is all about one man who is sitting in jail and about stopping him from being able to become prime minister again. That's Imran Khan. He's been sentenced to more than 30 years in prison in separate cases, and his party isn't allowed to run in elections. So Khan's allies are running as independents. Analysts say they expect to see a coalition government in power next, one that's easily swayed by the military. Dia Hadid, NPR News, Mumbai. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street today. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Maura Healey says the personal relationship she had with her latest nominee for the state's highest court played no role in her decision. The governor today nominated state appeals court Judge Gabrielle Wallahogen to the Supreme Judicial Court. She is the former long-term partner of the governor. Healey says the judge was the unanimous pick of the nominating committee. The choice has come under fire from the state Republican Party, which calls it highly inappropriate. The nomination still has to be approved by the governor's council. The city of Medford is calling on Israel and Hamas to declare a ceasefire. City Council Vice President Kit Collins says the resolution approved last night also calls for the release of all hostages. She says this is a local issue because many residents of Medford have family in both Gaza and Israel. Collins says it also involves billions of dollars being diverted overseas. We're talking about all of the urgent needs that are going unmet in our community because there isn't more local public dollars for fully funding the schools and road safety and affordable housing. And meanwhile, people see their tax dollars going overseas, you know, to wreak this destruction on a civilian population. The cities of Somerville and Cambridge have passed similar resolutions. A former state trooper indicted in a bribery scandal involving commercial driver's licenses pleaded not guilty in court today. 
63-year-old Calvin Butner is facing 20 charges, including conspiracy to falsify records and conspiracy to commit extortion. He's one of six people indicted in federal court in the scheme. That includes two troopers who have retired and been dishonorably discharged since then. 27% of likely Massachusetts voters say the future of American democracy is the most important issue that faces the country. That's according to a new Suffolk University poll of likely voters in the general election. 25% say immigration and border security is the most pressing issue. 18% say it's the economy. Those polled favor President Biden over Donald Trump in November's election, 45% to 26%. The forecast is ahead. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson, with the legendary Seven Fingers Troops U.S. premiere of Dual Reality, February 7th through 18th at the Cutler Majestic, artsemerson.org. Heavy on the clouds overnight tonight. Temperatures about 28 degrees. For tomorrow, sunshine is back. Temperatures could make it to the low 40s tomorrow. Partly sunny skies on Friday, warming to about 50 degrees. We could reach 60 by Saturday. 38 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and company events with online ordering and 24-7 live support. Learn more at easycater.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The situation at the U.S. border won't get fixed anytime soon. This afternoon, Senate Republicans blocked a bipartisan border package that was intended to decrease record numbers of illegal border crossings. This is the latest challenge, but the U.S. immigration system has not been working for decades. The last significant reform was 1986, and presidents and Congress have been trying to fix it and change it ever since. So why can't America fix its immigration problem? That's one of the questions I put to Teresa Cardinal-Brown. She's the Bipartisan Policy Center Senior Advisor for Immigration and Border Policy. And she spent years working on immigration policy, including under two presidents, George W. Bush and Barack Obama. I asked her if she saw any similar challenges across administrations. Both President Bush and President Obama were trying to pass comprehensive immigration bills. And and at that time, comprehensive immigration reform was widely understood to consist of three major components. One was reforms to the legal immigration system, most often related to balancing between family-based immigration and employment-based immigration, temporary worker visas, what the caps and, and, and annual limits should be legalization for the undocumented in the United States, and then border security, which during those years was really about how do we prevent and deter unlawful migration of Mexicans from Mexico, because that was the majority of what was happening at the border. Both presidents tried to do this on a bipartisan basis, and there were bipartisan efforts um, led uh, both times in the Senate, but, but in the House and the Senate under both administrations. At the end of the day, they weren't able to get those bills, you know, through the legislative process. And I think there were a couple of reasons for that. One of them is the bills were negotiated 
within a group of members. But when the bills came out, then it became a challenge if another member said, hey, wait a minute, I what about this thing that I wanted or I object to this piece of it? And if any of those pieces in that really tightly negotiated bill were taken out, such as happened with the Kenny McCain efforts, um, then then the total number amount of support and votes for the bill collapsed. They were both committed to trying to do it on a bipartisan basis. I think what we have seen at different periods of time since then, under President Trump and in President Biden's first couple of years, is attempts to do it all with your own party. From your view, from a policy standpoint, why do you think it is so difficult at least that we've seen so far, to craft legislation on the immigration issue that can be successful? I think it, it comes down to the fact that immigration is, is, is immigration law specifically and policy is extremely complex. Um, there are very few members of Congress or staff on Capitol Hill that have a real strong detailed understanding of the law, the policy, and how it actually operates. Um, you know, U.S. federal court judges have likened immigration law second only to tax law in its complexity. And so I think that that creates two challenges. One, that when you're trying to craft legislation, if you don't have that deep knowledge, you don't necessarily know how to get to the outcome you're trying to get to in a way that's workable. You don't know how what you're trying to propose would interact with other parts of the law. And so without that knowledge or understanding, um, it's, it's harder to do. It also means that immigration as a system resists simple solutions. <laughs> um, even though politics, as you're probably aware, um, is, is full of simplistic statements about really complicated problems, simplistic statements don't actually mean that you can have simplistic solutions. We've been talking about these policies, and I want to ask you a question that kind of gets at the humanity here. The latest mm -hmm. attempt to overhaul immigration policy, again, seems like it, it, it is not going to become reality. But what what is the cost of the failure to pass reforms, first for the people who are coming to the border? The system that we have in place at the border now was designed for a very, very different border than we have today. As I mentioned earlier, it was designed when 90 plus percent of all the people that were encountered trying to enter at the border were Mexicans, usually trying to sneak in, uh, evade detection, and look for work. Um, now we have people coming from 100-plus countries around the world, the majority of whom are turning themselves in to Border Patrol to try to ask for asylum, many of whom don't know what that means, but that's what they understand. That's how they get protection and get into the country. And their families, their children, um, in very, very vulnerable situations. And so our process that had asylum as this, this limited exception to if you enter between the ports of entry, we're going to deport you, suddenly was overwhelmed with a number of people that our system could not manage. It just no longer suits what we're doing today, what we're seeing today. I mean, you study this, you have worked on this issue for so long. So I'd like to end by asking you, do you think that Right now, significant reform is, in fact, achievable. 
Well, I think it has to be. I mean, there's this debate going back and forth that we've seen about, does the president have authority to do this on his own? Here's what I would tell you. President Obama, President Trump, and President Biden have all tried to do this on their own. And none of them has succeeded at length over time. And the policies they have all tried to put in place have all been caught up in the courts. Which means if you ask me today who's responsible for making policy at the border, it's actually the courts. And the courts bounce back and forth between letting a policy continue or taking it down. And so we haven't had consistency and that creates more chaos at the border. So I think at the end of the day, Congress has to take this up as hard politically as it is. At some point, necessity and hopefully their own voters will say, hey, stop kicking the can down the road. Stop saying you can't do it. You need to do it because there's not really another option that's going to change anything. I guess I'm just curious on a personal level, as someone who has invested so much time and so many years under various administrations working on this issue, what it feels like to watch it continue to hit an impasse again and again. And there seems to consistently be an inability to move forward in a substantive manner. What that feels like for you. So I have a standard line that I use when people ask me about this. I say, you you can either be an optimist or a masochist, (laughs) depending on what you want to call me for doing this for so long. I'm going to choose the former because I firmly believe that our country needs immigration and we need a system that works and it has to work for everybody. So, you know, I made a promise to myself a while ago that I wouldn't retire until I saw some change. My husband is now doubting that promise. Um, But I I just feel like we have to get it done. And if I can play a role in helping that come to fruition, as long as I can, I will keep trying. That's Teresa Cardinal-Brown. She's the Bipartisan Policy Center's Senior Advisor for Immigration and Border Policy. Teresa, thank you. You're welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The Dartmouth men's basketball team is not headed for March Madness. They're currently in last place in the Ivy League. There's Myrtle in the right corner, wide open, and it's in and out again. But they are headed for something historic, a union election. NPR's Andrea Shu explains why that has the college sports world talking. Two years ago, Dartmouth's 6'6 forward, Cade Haskins, was busy going to practices and games, keeping up with his classes, and working in the campus snack bar. Then, other students working for Dartmouth Dining began agitating for a union. I was kind of just listening, reading all about it, stayed informed. His interest surged as the students won their union election and then won big raises. Haskins' wage went from $13.25 an hour to now, as a supervisor, just under $25 an hour. That got him thinking about his basketball teammates and all the time they spend at practice, watching film, lifting weights, and traveling to games on weekends. It's easily 30-plus hours a week, honestly. If he got paid for that, Haskins thought he could quit the snack bar and his second job at the alumni desk. Haskins started talking to his teammates about what they could get from being in a union, the right to bargain over not just pay, but health benefits. You know, basketball, it's a physical sport, so, you know, people get hurt. Uh, this year, we've had a lot more injuries than most years. He himself has suffered shoulder and hip injuries and says Dartmouth doesn't help with the extra costs. Well, last September, the 15 players on the team came together and signed union cards, 
pledging their desire to join a union that represents other workers at Dartmouth. It's definitely different than the dining workers, but, you know, we definitely learned a lot from watching them. Now, Dartmouth didn't fight the dining workers union, but it is challenging the basketball players. At a hearing before the National Labor Relations Board, the school argued that the students' primary focus is learning, not basketball. Also, that as an Ivy, it does not give athletic scholarships and that its basketball program doesn't even generate revenue. But the labor official overseeing the hearing disagreed. She found that the basketball players do perform work that benefits Dartmouth and that the school exercises a lot of control over that work, the classic employer-employee relationship. And so, she ruled, the players should be allowed to go forward with a union election. Haskins and his teammates were at practice and heading over to lift weights when they got the news. So it made lifts a lot more positive and exciting. <laughs> the question of whether college athletes should be paid is a hot topic, with similar cases playing out at USC and elsewhere. Ken Jacobson, director of the sports law program at Temple Law School, has been watching all of these cases with trepidation. He says classifying college athletes as employees who are entitled to minimum wage would change the nature of college sports completely. The money and funding that would be necessary is substantial. It's one thing if you're Michigan, he says. It's another thing if you're one of the many schools that aren't bursting at the seams with cash. And if the funding isn't there, he says, then you're facing program cuts. And how to do that while ensuring equal opportunities for men and women. You know, this is the road I see down the line. Dartmouth has said it will appeal the ruling, but even so, the union election is expected to go forward in a matter of weeks. As with other union drives, this is likely just the start of what will be a long legal saga. Andrea Shu, NPR News. This is NPR News. Tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR, how Republican congressional leaders will try to salvage a chaotic week of border reform debate. That story and some helpful background on what's led to the Supreme Court's consideration tomorrow of the 14th Amendment and whether Donald Trump's name can be on the ballot. Start your day here tomorrow morning. WBUR supporters include Mass General Brigham Health Plant, offering innovative plans, comprehensive coverage, and a broad network of doctors all connected to one of the world's leading healthcare systems. Mass General Brigham Health Plan, with you every day. For more information, call your broker or visit MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. Join Morning Edition host Rupa Shinoi tomorrow night at City Space for a conversation with former NPR host Michelle Norris about her new book on what Americans really think about race and identity. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. The program starts at 6.30. Clouds around tonight, temperatures about 28. Tomorrow's sunshine, highs around 43 degrees. Hey, it's Ben Brock Johnson, executive producer of WBUR Podcasts. My mom turns 81 years old this month. She is many things, a poet, an activist, an extremely creative cook who makes pink bread with my daughter every week. Among her tireless edits, her experiments in the kitchen, good and not so good, her efforts to raise awareness about our climate, my mom somehow raised me and my older brother. 
This Valentine's Day, I'm thinking about what Herculean feats decades of love can do. I'm so thankful for what my mom has given me and for what she's given the world. If there's someone from your life and you want to tell them how much you love them this Valentine's Day in a meaningful way, consider sending them Winston Flowers from WBUR. And your support will help us tell more stories every day. Check out our choices at WBUR.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Our colleague Linda Wertheimer is retiring after more than 50 years at NPR, starting with the very first NPR News program in 1971. From National Public Radio in Washington, I'm Robert Conley with All Things Considered. On that day, Linda was the director, the woman who signaled the men when to talk. Soon, she was doing the talking herself as a political correspondent covering, to name just a few, the fallout from President Nixon's Watergate scandal. The committee received five sets of possible articles of impeachment, ranging from broad charges that the president violated his oath of office to... The Iran-Contra hearings. ...was a plan to divert sales from the Iranian arms to the Contra rebels in Nicaragua. ...and presidential inaugurations. The Marine Corps band finally played Hail to the Chief today for George Herbert Walker Bush. In 1989, she became the host of this very show. It's all things considered. I'm Linda Wertheimer. Today and tomorrow, we'll meet four women who had illegal abortions 20, 30, almost 50 years ago. The polls now closed in 27 states. The race between Republican George W. Bush and Democrat Al Gore remains close. But Linda has been on the mic for decades, so she's done a bit of everything, including guest hosting our sister show, Morning Edition. Our colleague Steve Inskeep remembers those stints as times he got to see another side of Linda, and Steve takes it from here. She chats in the studio when the microphone is off, telling you which foods go straight to your hips, which politician had a temper, or which person in the news was a beautiful man. On the occasion of her retirement, she was in our studios again. Thank you for coming by. It's a pleasure. Um, this might be a little less focused of an interview than some other things that we've done. I hope you have, I don't know, 30 or 40 minutes to I have talk. plenty of time. That's cool. Um, I got nothing but time. So we talked about her youth in New Mexico, growing up in Carlsbad, which was a mining town in the desert. My father was a grocer. He built a grocery store, a little bitty grocery store. My mother was a housewife. She sewed and made all my clothes. <laughs> mm. She was a mighty fine cook. Did you think about the wilder world when you were growing up? Yes, because we had radio. They listened to Edward R. Murrow, one of the first great radio newsmen. And when television arrived in the 1950s, Linda was surprised to see a newswoman. A proposal by the Soviet Union for a World Disarmament Conference. This is Pauline Frederick, NBC News at the United Nations. I said to my mother, that's a woman. And my mother said, very good, Linda. <laughs> <laughs> but it's meaningful. Go on. Why was it meaningful? Well, I, kn I didn't know women could do that work. So instead of my longing to be Edward R. Murrow's secretary, I suddenly thought, I don't have to be anybody's secretary. I can talk on the radio myself. She went from Carlsbad to college to newsrooms to NPR News, where she eventually covered politics. And it was great. You know, if I'd gone to work for the Washington Post, I would have had to strangle David Broder in order to cover politics. Great political columnist. It would have been a terrible thing to do. I understand. So you ended up at NPR. 
which has been known since the beginning as a place that is much more welcoming to women than perhaps some other companies or news organizations. It's extraordinary and true. Why? Partly it was for the sort of ugly reason that women were cheap. As Frank Mankiewicz, one of the former presidents of NPR, said at one point, you get more bang for the buck with the broads. Linda became one of the founding mothers, as they're often called, who defined much of NPR's sound and influenced its course. It was me, Susan Stamberg, Koki Roberts, and Nina Totenberg. And uh, we were privileged to be able to pretty much call the shots on our own work. And I can't tell you how much fun it was. Especially talking with voters, as she did in the winter of 2008. I remember once the producer that I was working with said to me, here's something, women, it's a group of women at the curling center. We were in Wisconsin, I think. Okay, people who do the sport of curling. She had no idea. She thought it might have something to do with Beauty salon. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I said, book them. Nora Fuller took her turn at sliding the rock down the ice. Fuller also joined her teammates furiously sweeping the ice ahead of sliding rocks. She's a retired teacher. After the game, she told us she considered Obama, but decided Clinton could better handle the job. I once talked to a bunch of people who were snowshoers out in New Hampshire. Okay. And I thought, you know, I've never done it. So I strapped on snowshoes and they showed me what to do. And we went out to a nice sort of little dell, sat on logs and talked about the election. The morning is bright. It's about 10 degrees out. Powdery snow is swirling in a light wind. About a dozen men and women follow Jocelyn Gotchis, wrapped to the eyes in assorted warm clothing, down a gentle hill and across a frozen beaver pond. You know, I should have paid NPR. <laughs> to have these experiences. Mm-hmm. Although the work could be excruciating, as it was when she was hosting All Things Considered on September 11, 2001. This is special coverage from NPR News on today's terrorist attacks. I'm Linda Wertheimer. And I'm Noah Adams. To bring us up to date I think we were all terrified that it was going to expand, that something else was going to blow up. But, you know, one of the things that, that uh, live radio teaches you is that you just forget all those kinds of things that you're terrified by, and you keep talking, and you acquire information, and you convey that information. That's the job. Over many years, whatever happened on the radio was the story. Was that the sound of gunfire? That is gunfire, yes. Is it right around where you are? Maybe a block away. That sounded very close. Yes. I'm crouching on the floor now, so I don't think I can continue this interview. Now, in talking about the art of interviews like that one, Linda Wertheimer recalled her father, the New Mexico grocer. My father was one of those people, he would say to people, so, how are you doing? And they they would tell him that they were doing okay, but that their father had died. And he'd say, well, that's fine. Hmm. Because he wasn't listening to anything right. they said. So I learned, I learned a lesson there that my job, my serious job, was to listen. Linda listened to the people she interviewed, and the audience learned to listen for Linda Wertheimer, 
who is retiring after 53 years at NPR. And you are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher's dedicated team of specialists provide resources on investing, retirement income, estate planning, and more. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. From Progressive Insurance, with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Temperatures are falling 34 degrees now in the Boston area. Should level off at about 28 tonight. Tomorrow should see the return of the sunshine. Temperatures about 43 degrees. Friday partly sunny, inching up to 50. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at howdoyouseetheworld.com. I'm here now, host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In Baghdad, a U.S. airstrike has killed high-ranking militia leaders linked to Iran-backed militias who are believed to be responsible for directly planning and taking part in attacks on American troops in the region. Our story is coming up on this Wednesday, February 7th. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear arguments tomorrow on whether Donald Trump should be removed from the Republican primary ballot in Colorado. Massachusetts and the rest of the country will be watching. It will be taken as a powerful signal of what the law is for other state and federal officials. Some teachers in Oklahoma were overpaid a bonus to return to the classroom. Now the state education department wants them to pay the money back. It's 601 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A group of high-ranking Biden administration officials is traveling to Michigan tomorrow to meet with Muslim and Arab American leaders. It comes as NPR's Asma Holly reports as the president faces intense criticism from some in the swing state for how he's handled the Israel-Hamas war in Gaza. The group of officials includes Biden's deputy national security advisor, John Finer, and Samantha Power, who heads up the U.S. agency responsible for delivering humanitarian aid. A White House official told NPR that the officials will 
will be traveling to Michigan to hear from the community directly about issues, including the war in Gaza. Biden has refused to call for a ceasefire despite the rising civilian death toll in Gaza, and he's faced some vocal opposition from inside his own party. This meeting comes after Biden's campaign manager traveled to Michigan late last month, and some local leaders were so upset they refused to meet with her. Asma Khalid, NPR News. Lawmakers in more than a dozen states are considering bills relating to physician-assisted deaths for people with terminal illnesses. That includes Virginia, where some residents see the debate as personal. Ben Pavier with VPM News has more. In 2022, Barbara Green was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. The 79-year-old has outlasted her doctor's predictions, but says she wants to be in control of how things end. Why would someone tell me I can't do what I want to do at the end of my life? I've seen people in horrible pain and suffering. Virginia lawmakers are considering bills that would give people with less than six months to live the ability to take lethal drugs prescribed by a doctor. Those rules echo laws already on the books in 10 states and Washington, D.C., Critics argue the process sets up vulnerable people to be coerced into the decision. For NPR News, I'm Ben Pavier in Richmond. Europe was already grappling with fallout from Russia's war against Ukraine in terms of its energy supplies. Now because of attacks on Red Sea shipping by Iran-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen, ships carrying liquefied natural gas are having to reroute. That is lengthening the journey and increasing costs. Stocks continue their move higher. The S&P coming close to 5,000 the first time ever. More from NPR's David Gura. Ford did better than Wall Street anticipated, and the carmaker forecasted a strong year ahead. And Disney, which has been cutting costs and raising subscription prices for its streaming service, also did better in the last quarter than analysts expected. New York Community Bank stock ended the day higher after several days of steep declines. The company slashed its dividend and announced losses tied to its real estate portfolio, stoking fear other regional banks could face similar difficulties. But the lender's executive chairman tried to reassure investors on a conference call with analysts. Alessandra Danello said customers have not been withdrawing their money, and the lender's stock closed up more than 6%. David Gura, NPR News, New York. The Dow rose 156 points. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey is defending her latest pick for a justice for the state Supreme Judicial Court. WBR's Walter Wuthman reports that Healy is facing criticism for nominating her former long-term partner to the post. Justice Gabrielle Wolohuljan has served on the state appeals court for 16 years and authored over 900 decisions. Wolohuljan was also in a long-term relationship with Healy when Healy was state attorney general. The governor says Willa Holgen was the unanimous choice of the nominating committee. I don't want the fact that she had a personal relationship with me to deprive the Commonwealth of a person who's most qualified for the position. The head of the state Republican Party calls the pick, quote, highly inappropriate. The nomination still needs approval from the eight-member governor's council. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Several high-profile bills appear to be dead on Beacon Hill. They include one that would have given teachers and other public workers the ability to strike. Another would have given communities the option to bring back happy hour at bars. Bills that are still in play include investments in early education and care and a bill updating sex education. Today was the deadline for joint committees to decide which bills they'll consider. Massachusetts Gaming Commission is looking to crack down on sex trafficking at casinos. The commission plans to study the influence of the expansion of casinos on trafficking. 
The final report will detail how law enforcement and casino staff can identify and stop sex trafficking. A program on Cape Cod that helps young people who are facing housing instability is expanding. Host Homes matches unhoused young people with homeowners who have an extra room. A pilot program has been running on parts of the Cape. It's expanding now thanks in part to a roughly $1 million federal grant received in partnership with Barnstable County. Dan Gray is with the county and says the program makes sure placements are a good fit. Are there pets that the young person might be able to help with taking care of? Are there expectations around, I prefer that you don't be out after X time every night? You know, so that those conversations take place before anyone moves in to make sure that everyone is on the same page. Gray says the federal money will allow the program to pay hosts a monthly stipend of about $1,000 for providing a room. It is 35 degrees now in Boston. We should see a slow but steady rise in temperatures through the rest of the week. Mid to upper 40s tomorrow and Friday could reach 60 on Saturday. 35 now in Boston at 6.07. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Ari Shapiro. In Baghdad, a U.S. airstrike has killed at least one leader of one of the most powerful Iran-backed militias. The attack took place mid-evening in a crowded Baghdad neighborhood. There's been extremely high tension between the U.S., Iran, and Iraq. NPR's Jane Araf joins us from Baghdad. Jane, what more can you tell us about this strike? It took place in a crowded residential and commercial area in Baghdad, eastern Baghdad, about mid-evening when there were a lot of people out and around. Videos from the scene confirmed by an interior ministry official showed a sport utility vehicle engulfed in flames and emergency vehicles rushing to the scene. The main telegram channel used by a coalition of Iran-backed militias confirmed that a leader of Qatab Hezbollah was killed in the attack. It named him as Abu Bakr al-Saidi. An official at the at Iraq's Ministry of Interior said he had been the head of logistics for Kitab Hezbollah. And a statement from CENTCOM, U.S. CENTCOM, which confirmed that it conducted a unilateral strike in Iraq in response to the attacks recently on U.S. service members. It said it killed a Kitab Hezbollah commander who it said was responsible for directly planning and participating in attacks on U.S. forces in the region. And this is not the first strike on this particular militia. Tell us about the context. Well, Qatab Hezbollah is perhaps the most powerful member of the mostly Iran-backed militias that call themselves the Islamic resistance of Iraq. It's a group that had existed before, but they've significantly stepped up attacks since the start of the war in Gaza against the U.S. because of what they say, against the U.S. because of its support for Israel and also because they reject the presence of U.S. forces here. The U.S. said the attack in January on a U.S. base in Jordan that killed three service people bore their fingerprints, this particular group. And in retaliation for that, the United States struck a main militia headquarters on the weekend in Iraq near the Syrian border. But most of the casualties in that strike were believed to be relatively low level and from other militias. This one seemed to be very targeted. What has the reaction been in Iraq? 
there's been a cautious Iraqi military statement. They say they're still investigating after a vehicle was hit and passengers killed. We have to remember this is a nightmare for the Iraqi government. The government, which is also backed by Iran in many senses, says it has tried to rein in these militias and it doesn't want to become a battleground for the conflict between the U.S. and Iran. But the U.S. had said, has said that the government isn't doing enough and when it announced the retaliation for the deaths of U.S. service people, it said the retaliation would be open-ended and this is what we're seeing, essentially. It was very targeted, this strike, um, according to videos verified by the Interior Ministry here. Images of the weapons programs looked as of the fragments looked as if it were a version of the U.S. Hellfire missile with an inert warhead. And that's the kind used in other counterterrorism attacks. That's NPR's Jane Araf in Baghdad. Thank you. Thank you. The Supreme Court hears arguments tomorrow in a case that will decide whether Donald Trump should be removed from the Republican primary ballot in Colorado. There are at least two questions worth considering. The first is legal. Do his actions around the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol bar him from office according to the 14th Amendment? The second question is practical. What would happen if Trump were removed from the ballot? How might his tens of millions of supporters respond? Here's Trump at a rally last month. And I just hope we get fair treatment, uh, because if we don't, our country's in big, big trouble. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? I think so. Because they'll cover that completely differently. They'll cover that in a much different manner. University of Chicago law professor Aziz Huck has spent some time thinking about that second practical question. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Sasha. Would you walk us through the arguments for and against removing Trump from the ballot? After the Civil War, Congress proposed and states ratified an amendment to the Constitution that said that anyone who engaged in insurrection or rebellion or provided assistance or aid or comfort to those would be disqualified from holding federal offices if they had previously sworn an oath to uphold the Constitution. The argument today is that Section 3, by its terms, covers various actions that former President Trump committed, particularly on January the 6th. President Trump argues that the terms of Section 3 do not apply to his actions because he is not the right kind of official and because what happened on January the 6th did not count as an insurrection, at least as far as his actions were concerned. He further argues that if Section 3 is to be applied, it has to be done through a mechanism that Congress creates, rather than by the independent actions and decisions of various state authorities. So he objects on multiple fronts. Whatever the court's ruling eventually is, would that ruling necessarily apply to all the states in terms of whether Trump is off or on the ballot? I think the best way to think about this is that the Supreme Court often rules on one specific factual dispute involving parties on one side and on the other side. Technically, the ruling binds only those parties. 
I suspect that even if technically the ruling in the Colorado case only binds the Colorado Secretary of State, nonetheless, it will be taken as a powerful signal of what the law is for other state and federal officials. You wrote in Politico that a win for plaintiffs, meaning Trump would be kept off the ballot, would, and we mentioned this earlier, be, quote, the beginning of a bloody unraveling of democratic norms. Why do you say that? I think it is easy to think if you are opposed to former President Trump appearing on the 2024 uh, election ballot, that a ruling from the Supreme Court will end the dispute, the public debate, over Trump's candidacy in 2024. Even if the court rules, that is almost certainly not going to be the end of the matter. In the past few years, we've seen an increase in people's expressed willingness to commit acts of political violence. We've seen, particularly in the last couple of months, a debate about whether state officials are under an obligation to follow instructions from the Supreme Court. And as we saw in 2020 and 2021, there are often questions about how electors in the Electoral College for president can or should behave. It sounds like you're saying that some people, primarily conservatives or Republicans, might resist. They might defy the order, particularly at the state level. I think it would be very surprising if the court rules that Trump is barred from the ballot. I think it would be even more surprising if such a ruling did not spark open and active opposition from the general public, who are sympathetic to former President Trump, from state officials, and from the people who are involved in the counting and certification of the general election in November 2024. By the way, did I just hear you say you think it's unlikely that the Supreme Court will rule to keep Trump off the ballot? I think that the Supreme Court is unlikely to uh, rule that President Trump is disqualified, even from the Colorado ballot. There is a conservative legal thinker named David French who writes a column for The New York Times. And he makes the argument that the consequences of not disqualifying Trump would be even worse. He says if Trump runs and loses, we could see a repeat of January 6th, the attack. And if he wins, he could use the government to go after his political enemies. What do you say about that argument? I think it is completely correct to say, as David French has said, that whatever pathway the country takes between now and, let's say, mid-2025 is one characterized by a very high risk of political violence. Part of that risk is the violence that might follow from supporters of the former president venting their rage at an outcome that they don't like, whether that's a court decision or whether it's an electoral result. Part of that political violence might be the misuse of official power by people who don't think that public expression of democratic preferences is okay when those preferences don't align with their views. We are in a world in which there is a greater appetite for political violence among both individuals out in the general public and also people who work for the state in various capacities where they have the right to use force, 
And under those conditions, it is really hard to see how we navigate the next couple of years without some kind of serious political violence. So either way, no matter you think that whether or not he's on the ballot, there's a risk of political violence. I think that the conditions that are creating, that are pushing political violence to the surface are going to exist regardless of the particular sequence of events that lead up to the 2024 election. I have a really hard time seeing how that how any pathway in which political violence is not a substantial risk. That's University of Chicago law professor Aziz Huck. Thank you for your time. Thank you. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Business News starts at 6.30 on WBUR. In tonight's program, there's a push to make the U.S. a leader in solar manufacturing, but there's a but. When you look at the solar industry, although a lot of the technology was developed in the States, all the manufacturing pretty much is done outside of it. The struggle to create a domestic solar sector coming up in the next half hour on WBUR. WBUR supporters include Leslie University. Inspire a whole new generation of learners with an education degree from Lesley University. Get started today at lesley.edu. Winston Flowers and support for WBUR, the perfect gift for Valentine's Day. Order now to save 10% at WBUR.org. Some substantial gains on Wall Street today. The Dow picked up four-tenths of a percent. S&P pulled in eight-tenths of a percent, notching a closing high of just five points shy of 5,000. And the Nasdaq rose nearly a full percent. UMass Lowell is establishing a new electronics lab to train students in the manufacture of printed circuit boards. A UMass spokeswoman says the global market for the boards reached over $86 billion last year. It's expected to hit $141 billion in less than a decade. The school estimates there are currently 2,400 vacant jobs in electronics manufacturing in the state. This is WBUR. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Habib and Associates Architects, providing architectural services for projects designed to improve your community. HabibARCH.com. Tonight should be cloudy and dry, about 28 for a low. Sunshine returns tomorrow, should stay the day, with high temperatures in the mid-40s. Friday, sunshine and clouds turning breezy and milder could reach 50 degrees. The warmish weather keeps coming over the weekend, spiking to about 60 degrees on Saturday. 35 now in Boston at 621. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Former President Donald Trump will be returning to Nevada for tomorrow's caucuses, and he's virtually guaranteed to sweep its 26 delegates. On the stump, he's looking ahead to November and testing out some general election material for a crucial audience in one of the most pivotal states in this year's race. We want to get a great, beautiful mandate. And this November, we're going to win the swing state of Nevada. You ever think of it as a swing state? Is Trump's pitch resonating for Nevadans? NPR's Franco Ordonez spoke to voters there to find out. On a rainy day in the Las Vegas suburb of Henderson, Danielle Harper was lifting groceries from a cart into her car. The 39-year-old mom holds one person largely responsible, President Biden. While she's paying little attention to this week's primaries, she's very focused on November. I'm coming out of the grocery store pissed about what I just spent. I promise you I'm not happy about that grocery bill. $22 for a pack of chicken is out of line. This is America. This is crazy. But Harper isn't sure she can vote for Trump either. She knows her concerns about the economy and the direction of the country, though, make her a prime target for the Trump campaign. No, I'm absolutely exactly who they want. Middle class white lady. That's, yeah, that's, I'm the Republicans' target. They'll say anything that they can to get me to vote for them. Parked one row over at the grocery store, Denise Caballero would prefer not to vote for Trump either. But she's resigned to do so if it's between the former and current president. People would say, oh, you're, you're voting for the evil of the lesser two, but no, I'm voting for what I want for my kids for the future. While the U.S. economy has bounced back in many ways, Nevada has had a slower recovery. Because of the state's reliance on the hospitality and tourism industries, Nevada was exceptionally hard hit during COVID. Its unemployment rate is nearly two points higher than the rest of the country. Thank you. Trump stoked those concerns at a recent rally in East Las Vegas, blasting Biden about the economy and the chaos on the southern border. But let there be no doubt what Joe Biden is doing is a crime against our nation. It's an absolute betrayal of our country, and it's an atrocity against our Constitution. Nobody's ever seen anything like it. This week, he's been continuing that message with local radio and newspaper interviews. President Biden didn't pull any punches either when he visited Nevada ahead of the Democratic primaries, despite his assured victory. Donald, I got bad news for you, pal. It's too late. He hyped progress on the economy and warned of a nightmare should Trump return to office. You're one of only two presidents in American history, you and Herbert Hoover, who left office with fewer jobs than when you took office. The dueling visits are another sign of the state's importance, but both candidates will have to overcome a lack of enthusiasm around the likely rematch. Back in Henderson, Becca Meyer says she's not a huge fan of Biden but she sees him as the better alternative to Trump. Clearly Trump is not the answer, we've been there. That feels so monstrous for how we treat humanity, like that's not even an option, but we're gonna continue with complacency, which is what I feel like we're doing. And she feels guilty about how disengaged she is and worries others will be too, if they aren't already. This is the best we can come up with, really? Like, really? Franco Ordonez, NPR News, Las Vegas. The Oklahoma Department of Education rolled out a new signing bonus program this school year to help address the state's ever-growing teacher shortage. But according to an investigation from nonprofit news site Oklahoma Watch and State Impact Oklahoma's Beth Wallace, the program turned into a nightmare for several teachers when the department demanded the bonus money back. 
Christina Stadelman sits at her dining room table, cradling her three-day-old son. She says she's trying to focus on enjoying this moment with her baby, instead of the demand letter from the Oklahoma State Department of Education in front of her. I haven't had the time to really wrap my head around it and really focus on this because I didn't want to ruin this moment. Stadelman teaches elementary special education in the Oklahoma City metro area. She applied to the state's new teacher signing bonus program, which used $16 million in funds left over from federal pandemic relief, plus funds allocated for students with disabilities. To be eligible, educators had to commit to teach elementary or special education for five years and couldn't have taught the year before in Oklahoma. She was awarded a $50,000 signing bonus, almost a whole your salary. We were able to put um, a down payment on a van to be able to have more room and have more room for the kids. And it's helping me be able to take my six weeks um, so I can spend the time with my newborn. But in January, she got an email from the department that turned everything upside down. The money I received in November, they determined, unfortunately, that I did not meet the requirements and that I needed to pay the money back. The department said Stadelman wasn't eligible because she taught at an Oklahoma public school last year. She says she misunderstood the requirements when she applied. But records show she did list her employment history on her application. If I was trying to falsify, I wouldn't have provided that information. They made the mistake, not me. Stadelman isn't alone. State Impact found nine teachers were overpaid by at least $290,000. The department confirmed those figures, but after the investigation aired, said only four teachers were affected. A department spokesperson said these errors shouldn't diminish the overall success of the program, which awarded bonuses to over 500 teachers. But Cable Horkes wasn't thinking about clawbacks when her supervisor encouraged her to apply, mistakenly believing that she qualified. On her application, Bohorquez reported being employed at Epic Charter Schools last year. And as far as I understood, I met all the criteria. That's why my name got put in the hat in the first place. In November, she got the maximum bonus of $50,000. She used it to pay off debts to qualify for better college loans for her son. On January 13th, she received an email from the department telling her to return the full amount. When I read the letter, I threw up. Um, my financial situation is not going to be able to withstand this. This is going to ruin me. You came in and you interrupted my life with the promise of grandeur, and then you tell me that, oh, whoops, <laughs> we messed up. Now your life is ruined. Bohorquez and Stadelman are suing the department for breach of contract. After State Impact's investigation aired, the state's top officials weighed in. Several State House Education Committee chairs called on the department to find a better solution than clawbacks. At a late January press conference, the state superintendent said there may be one. There is a path forward that does not require a, a payback from those teachers. So they can, they can agree to certain things with our agency. Addendums to the contracts that say we agree to do this for a longer period of time. In other words, teachers might have to work longer than the original contract's five years in order to avoid having to pay back their bonuses. But the specifics are still up in the air. The department spokesperson notes it only incorrectly awarded 2% of the total amount of bonuses. But teachers say that number represents real people. And after the department awarded them life-changing amounts of money, they're left to deal with the life-changing fallout. For NPR News, I'm Beth Wallace in Tulsa.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The Celtics take on the Atlanta Hawks at the Garden tonight, 7.30 start time. Celts have sealed a deal ahead of tomorrow's NBA trade deadline. Multiple reports say the Seas will get veteran forward Xavier Tillman from the Memphis Grizzlies. WBUR supporters include ZTech Associates, providing on-site and remote IT support, cybersecurity, and compliance for Boston-area biotechs, financial firms, and more. ZTechNet.com. 